0: Well, good morning, community church, good morning online, everyone else who is enjoying this wonderful day with us today. A few weeks ago, I pulled into the parking lot here to come to work, and Pastor Allen was pulling in next to me. So I got out of my car, he got out of his, and as I walked around, he looked at me, he said, Wow, you look nice today. Are you doing a funeral? I just kind of didn't say anything, and I went into the office, and as we walked in, our executive assistant, Holly Knudsen, was there, and she said, Oh, you look nice today. Are you doing a funeral? (laughs) You know, that can create a complex in a person. Uh, I didn't know if what they were saying was the only time you look good is when you're dressed with a suit and a tie, or if you always do funerals like this. You know, well... I was doing a funeral that day, (laughs) but today, I didn't wear the coat and the tie, but we are doing a funeral, and it's yours and mine. It's called the funeral of the redeemed. You see, we often don't understand what God has really done for us. But Paul captured it in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our funeral. You and I, who are followers of Jesus Christ, have been crucified with him. And we have already had the price paid for that which you and I deserve because of our sin. One of the great things I love in Scripture is finding these things that will jump out to you. Maybe you have some of them. The famous 23rd Psalm that David wrote has two passages in that psalm that I hold on to every day. The first one's at the end of the psalm where David says, so surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word follow in the Hebrew means pursue. So actually he's saying goodness and mercy will pursue me the rest of the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, you'd have to because you know what? If God pursues, God catches. And he is in pursuit of all of us to understand who we really are. So that's where that is. But the other part that has to occur in your life before you can engage in that part is where the phrase says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What's he saying? That death is but a shadow for those who have been crucified in Christ. That as a believer in Jesus Christ, when death comes for me, when my funeral happens, I'm not going to be there. Because though I am dead in him, crucified in him, yet I live. So I'm excited that I know God's going to pursue me with his mercy and his love and his grace the rest of my days, but because he has already passed through death so that it's not but a shadow now, then I know I have eternal life with him. I'll dwell in his house forever. Well, that's that's what we've been talking about now for three weeks. This is the fourth. We talked about approaching the cross. Where does it come from? What's it all about? And then we talked about the heart of the cross, which is the forgiveness that God gives us. And then last week we had a great message. Pastor Allen taught us about what it really means. What's the effect of the cross? What did it accomplish? And it was our salvation. And a few people responded to that last week. They have a new life now. But today, God wants you to learn What it means to live under the shadow of the cross. Because that's the shadow David's talking about, the the valley of the shadow of death. That's where you and I are right now. We're in that valley, but we've not, not yet passed through to death. But we've already died on the cross. And when he died, you died. When he died, your sin died. When he died, you became alive. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's not easy to live under the shadow of the cross. It's a hard thing to do. You know that. I can't seem to find a day that I can get through totally without some thought, some action, some word that I know is out of accord. With God's purpose for me. I just can't get there. I'm struggling. Don't tell me you're not, then you just add lying to it. (laughs) It is a struggle, isn't it? To live up to what He wants us to live up to. There was a man centuries ago who wrote a great book called The Imitation of Christ. He said these few things that kind of distinguish the difficulty for us. He said, Jesus has many who love His kingdom in heaven but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who desire suffering. Many who want to share his feasts, but few who want to share his fasting. All of us desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer on his behalf. God's call today is to pull us out of that and make us the few, the few who are willing to follow him, to carry our cross, to do what we want to do. We're called to be among the few, the redeemed few. So today, you're going to learn how to acknowledge that, how to accept it, and how to act on it. So let's start our funeral. You know, just as a side note, I've decided that I'm going to do my own and leave a DVD for it because I can't trust any of the people here to do a good job of it. And I'm not going to talk about me other than to say I told you I was sick. But when you attend this one today, just consider what's happening. The first thing is this. Here we are, and we're looking up at this cross, and it says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Now, there are different ways to officially state death has happened. You may have had the, the sad situation have I, as I have had in the past where someone passed away in my family and the doctor said, well, his brain is dead, so he's dead. Another one, the heart's not functioning, so he's dead. Lots of ways to describe death, but the Bible describes it with three different things that happened on the cross. The first is this. It's death to your sin. That's a legal death. Let me talk about that for a moment. God made a contract a long time ago. The initial contract was with Adam and Eve, and they broke the contract. Then he re-upped that contract all through the history as he set this covenant in place that he promised you and me that if we failed to keep the contract, he would keep it for us. So when Christ died on the cross, he was fulfilling the contract. He was saying, I've done what has to be done so that you can have Eternal life. Your sin's paid for. But there's so many out there, especially today, who don't understand that. They believe that as long as I can think about the things I've done that are good versus the things that I've done that are bad, and they outweigh so that I'm better than I am bad, I'll be fine. But God doesn't measure on a scale friend of mine and I, another pastor, were having a meal this past week, and the lady who was helping us came over, and he beat me to the punch because I'm always going to say, what's your name, you know? uh, Married, single, roommate, uh, fiance, kids, you know, what's going on in your life? And he said to her, so what's going on in your life? Tell me your spiritual journey. She said, well, I don't really believe in that stuff. She said, but I'm okay. I'm okay because I know in the end, that if I've done more good than bad, everything will be fine. And that is a predominant thought, isn't it? I want to challenge you. Just try one day and see if at the end of that day you've done more good than bad. Of course, it'll be your own judgment. And you think, well, I did more good than bad. Well, how about your thoughts? How about the things you didn't do, but you just thought of doing them? How about the things you said or the things you chose not to say because you knew they wouldn't be right? I don't think I can get through a day where I am perfect. I know I can't. Maybe a day or two in a week, I've done more good than bad. But in the end, none of that matters. God doesn't grade on a scale. God graded when he looked at his son and said, He has perfectly kept the contract, and that means he did it, and yet he punished him for obedience, and he didn't punish us for disobedience. That's amazing, but that's what it means. The legal contract has been fulfilled. You don't have to do anything not to get that contract fulfilled. Christ did it all on the cross. But then there's a second kind of death on the cross. It's the death to self in your life. It's the moral death. When you and I were born, we were born immoral. We were born in opposition to God's word. We were born with a bent against righteousness. We were born with a sinful nature. And the only way that nature can be dealt with is to kill it. So God took my sinful nature, myself, and he put me on the cross. And I was crucified with Christ there so that all of a sudden my morality has changed. I used to think before I was 28 years old and came to Christ that I could do whatever I wanted to do as long as I wasn't really physically hurting anyone, that it would be okay because I didn't have an absolute ethic to base my morality on. My my actions had no foundation. But then when I find myself crucified with Christ, I find that suddenly my thinking is different. I now have an absolute base from which to make decisions on how I'm going to act. So God put to death the immoral nature within me and gave me back the ability and the desire to be a moral person based on his absolute ethics, based on the word of God, not on man's opinion. Not on percentages of 51% over 49. No, on his word alone. That is the only absolute we have in this world. And so my decisions are now made by that, by God's ethical standards. There's a third death that took place. It's the death to slothfulness in your life. It's a physical death. Now, I'm not just talking about being lazy, I'm talking about slothfulness defined like this, I am not pursuing God's goal for my life. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing in life, are you doing it to the glory of God? Seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness will be added to you. Righteousness is action. You'll be able to act out ethically everything you're supposed to do as long as you're pursuing Him through whatever occupation or livelihood he's given you. That's what he wants from you. And he has given you the Holy Spirit real time in your life to lead you in that. So you and I live in a physical body that ultimately will die, but will be given back a body that will not die. Some of us are more excited than others about that. But now, living in this body, I'm also spiritually alive because when I was crucified with Christ I continue to live in the spirit though this body is dying with age. And so I will not die. I will continue because God has paid the price for physical death, for moral death, and for legal death. So we are set free. We're alive. I think that Jesus speaks these words that reflect what Paul said in Galatians when he says in Mark eight thirty four, when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said to them, whosoever will come after me, three things, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, deny himself. I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Also, take your cross, follow me. Well, to do that, you have to get the next part of Galatians 2.20, which is, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. This is where a great struggle takes place. Statistics have shown that a very small percentage of those who are followers of Jesus Christ... Those who believe the scriptures actually hold a biblical worldview, which means they understand the world based on scripture, that scripture is my reference point for everything. It's my reference point for politics, my reference point for socially being gathered together, my reference point for finances, my reference point for marriage. It's the reference point for everything. So I see the world through Scripture. The great theologian John Calvin once said that you need to put on the glasses of Scripture to see the world the way God sees it. I was wrestling with, how do you illustrate that? And I came across something that I did not even know existed. This was new information to me. Are there any of you out here who suffer from colorblindness? There probably are a few in a group this large. I don't have that, but I know it, it must be debilitating because you can't see the world the way we see it. Well, I found just less than a minute of illustrations of people who received something that's been newly manufactured just in the past few years, when they put these glasses on, they actually can see color for the first time. So we've captured some who see color for the very first time. There's no audio. I'll tell you why in a minute. Just watch this. The reason we didn't use audio was you don't want to hear what they were saying. (laughs) So if you go to watch that on YouTube, be ready for a few expletives that express how excited they are now to be able to see color. (laughs) When you put on scripture, you say, oh my God, and you mean it (laughs) because you see the way that God sees the world. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to have the same kind of excitement when we pick up scripture to say, Wow, I haven't seen that before. That is amazing. You see, God can, can recalibrate us. When we were born, we were born with a misdirected compass. We were born to not see the way God sees, but to see in the opposite. We couldn't find true north until God found us. When he finds you, He redeems you. He pays the price for you. And he opens your eyes that you can see for the first time how he sees the world. You know what happened when that happened to me is for the first time I realized, wow, uh, there is a meaning to life. There is value at the end of this. I have meaning now. I am a child of God. No matter what I do with my life, God is with me. This is amazing. So it is not I who live, but Christ who's living in me. Because God gave me the Holy Spirit to live in me. And he's recalibrating my compass so that my true north is God. I think we need that because of the world in which we're living right now. I'm not speaking simply of the difficulties we've passed through in the last year. I'm talking about the basic nature of our culture and cultures around the world. Listen to this. Paul talked about it when he wrote his letter, second letter to Timothy. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. I just wonder, are we in those last days? Well, if we're not... We're closer than anybody else has ever been, but it certainly sounds a lot like the culture in which we live today. It's that wrestling that you and I still have that they haven't even engaged yet. They're bad and they don't even know it. I have a good friend from Moldova. When I say, how are you? He said, I'm a bad man with a good God. (laughs) That's all of us, isn't it? But here's the struggle we go through. It was captured by Robert Louis Stevenson in that famous, the the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's not recommended reading, okay? (laughs) But it's the story of where Dr. Jekyll is wrestling inside of himself with his alter ego, and his alter ego is absolute evil. So it's the battle of good and evil back and forth. And it's so hard that in the end... The only way Jekyll can control Hyde is to kill him. But in killing him, what happens? He kills himself. Well, you have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, that evil in you has been put to death. Because nevertheless, you live. And not only do you live, but you live in Christ so you're in a very safe place to live. You have won the struggle, the battle for good and evil. And the life you now live, the rest of Galatians 2:20, you live in the flesh in the faith of the Son of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to live by faith? Faith requires an object. The object is Jesus Christ. So I am assured that Christ is who he says he is for multiple reasons. But the biggest reason is because I know better than anybody that there was a change in me. That I went from darkness to light. That I had a moral compass again. That I knew I needed something to help me in life. And what is it? It's the Holy Spirit that he gives to me. I need the Holy Spirit. I don't need to cry out, oh God, where are you? He's right here. When you call on him, he's already there. He's wanting to to be there for you. Living by faith is the assurance of the things you're hoping for. And he is the substance of what you haven't seen. You live in the flesh in this world, meaning we have these bodies. We don't have a choice. But we also have a spirit. And my spirit is in communication with the Holy Spirit. He's constantly leading me to truth. But I have to yield to that leading. My action is that now I live by faith. What kind of faith? My faith is in Jesus Christ, same kind of faith he had, which believed the Father. Someone said this, there's a great truth between these two statements. The first statement is this, on the cross, he was crucified for me. That brings deliverance from sin's condemnation. The other statement is, on the cross, I was crucified with him. And that brings deliverance from the power of sin. So though I sin, sin no longer has a power over me. I am not a slave to sin. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. And so are you if you yield to it. That's why Paul writes in Romans 6, 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How? Because the Holy Spirit lives within us. Look what he said in John 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The word cannot accept him. The world can't because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. He lives with you and will be in you. And then Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit fell. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, 100% of the Holy Spirit fills you up. You get all of him you'll ever need in quantity. It's up to you how much of the quality you produce while he's in you based on how you yield to his leadership. So if you're truly saying, I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live In the faith of Jesus Christ, it means I'm totally yielded. I'll do whatever Christ has called me to do. I will die for him. There was a difficulty I was having in finding a conclusion to this message. So many different directions to go. And so I was praying, you know, God, just help me with this. Help me with this. So Friday night, Saturday morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, I woke up with an idea. Well, I knew it had to be from God because it was so far removed from anything I had been thinking. And I went, you know, okay, thank you, God. And I laid back down. and It was like, get up. Go do the research. Right. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, Holy Spirit. Don't you understand this? He said, yeah, get up and write. So I did. Now, here's the story the most famous missionary story of the 20th century. A 29-year-old graduate of Wheaton College named Jim Elliott had a passion to go to Ecuador. He and his wife Elizabeth and their daughter Valerie, they learned Spanish for a year and then they went to Ecuador. And early in January of 1956, they flew to a tribe called the Acas in Ecuador. It's a very dangerous group of people who had killed everyone else who had ever come in from the outside. But Jim really felt God was calling him to go there. So he and his friend Nate Saint, who flew the plane, and three other guys, five of them, flew in. And every day at noon, they'd get on their two-way radio, and they'd call back to the base, and they'd say, We're doing fine. Here's what's happened today. On the sixth day, there was no communication. So the families and the leaders became a little concerned. And A few days later, they took their own plane and they flew over where they knew the men had landed. And there, in the dirt and in the river, were five bodies. All five men had been slain. A couple of years later, the pilot's sister and Jim's wife Elizabeth and their daughter, Valerie, went back to that village. They were there for a while, and others came, and the entire village came to Christ. And in that time, they learned the actual facts of what happened on the day that all of the men were killed. The men who actually performed the murders became believers and told their story. And in that story, they said, you know, we're very, very shocked at why the one man, who ended up being Jim Elliott, did not pull his weapon to fire at us when we were attacking. But you see, the others understood, the leaders of the missionaries, they said, well, because the five men had made a pact, they had said, we will not kill the Alcas because we came here for them to be saved. If we have to die in order for them to be saved, we will. And they did. Some 20 years later, my wife and I had the the pleasure, the joy of being friends with Valerie Elliott and her husband, Walt Shepard. He had grown up in the Congo, and they were missionaries, and Uh, Now they're retired and having a wonderful life. But I remember going into their home once to have a meal with them and seeing the pictures of her dad, Jim Elliott, all over the place. And, And then I saw this one statement. It's a famous statement now, and he's the one who made it. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What did he do? He gave his life, which he cannot keep, to gain eternal life, which he cannot lose. Sounds a lot like Jesus to me. He gave his life that you and I might have life and live it in him and with him and through him. Is he your savior? If not, you need to ask him to take over your life. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me. Change me, make me a new person. He'll do it. He promises he'll do it. No one comes to him and gets turned away. So I hope that's what will happen in your life today. And if it's already happened, praise the Lord. Now start living through that lens of Scripture that tells you how to live and receive the blessings of God. Next week is Easter. You do not want to miss Easter. You don't want to miss Good Friday. Good Friday is actually the conclusion of this series on the cross. It's going to be a wonderful message. And then on Sunday, we have Easter. Bring your friends, but register first. Because you're going to hear so much about Jesus that any unbeliever out there will be challenged to accept him. So I just challenge you to register, bring your friends Get an online party going, whatever you need to do. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you that we have been crucified with you, and yet we're still alive. And yet our lives are consumed by you, or at least they should be. And you've given us every opportunity to make that happen because you've given us the precious Holy Spirit. So, Lord, today we pray for those who are in you that we might be obedient and live for that which we can never lose lord separate us from the world and make us a people who reflect you we pray for those who today may for the first time accept you welcome in to the kingdom of god lord we're looking forward to this week and this next weekend as we celebrate what you accomplished for us and until then keep us safe keep us humble And help us, Lord, to serve and worship you. For we pray it all in your name. Amen.